Hello and welcome back to Pictorial. I am Quinn Rose. I did not go to art school, but I'm really excited about art and to bring with you all of the strange and wonderful things we've learned about for today. (laughs) And I'm Betty. I am also someone who did not go to art school, but I'm super enthusiastic about art and I love art. And I uh, also would like to talk about all the strange and interesting aspects of it with Quinn. Yeah, so today we learned about sort of a general topic of wealth in art. And there are obviously so many different directions with this. Um, And we're going to touch on a couple of different things about this whole strange world on sort of the financial value of art and how we value it and tax evasion (laughs) and, and, you know, all that good stuff in the art collecting world. But I figured maybe we'd start with what are the most expensive works of art in the world? Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of you would have heard of this news uh, back in November of 2017 when this painting by Leonardo uh, Leonardo da Vinci called Salvador Mundi, it was sold for $450.3 million um, by Christie's. And it was bought by, um, I'm probably going to butcher his name, uh, Prince B- Badir bin Abdullah, um, who was a prince in Saudi Arabia. And so this was basically the most expensive painting ever sold at public auction. So the painting is attributed to Leonardo. Right now, currently, we have no idea where this painting is located. Uh, some people think it may be sitting at a Freeport, which we can go into later on what that is. Um, and some people also think it might be in uh, this other prince, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman's yacht. Uh, so we don't know, but it's it's not for pu- on for public view uh, at all. And so, so this definitely, it broke the record of the most expensive painting ever sold by I think a really, uh, it, like by a lot. I actually, I now I want to pull up the list of what's the next most expensive painting. Um, but basically, this is one that probably a lot of you may have heard of. Yeah, the number two was about $300 million. Mm-hmm. So that's a $150 million difference. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously quite a lot. And it's funny because the, the painting itself is Jesus, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus holding a crystal ball. Yeah, so the uh, the name uh, Salvador Mundi means like savior of the world. And yeah, it's basically Jesus. Um, but it's interesting when I was reading up about it, I read... So the attribution to Leonardo is actually still disputed. Mm. Some experts... Uh, think it was probably painted by one of Leonardo's students, but there's not a consensus on which one of his students did it. Like he had a huge studio. Uh, Some people think maybe his students worked on it and he did touch-ups. So parts of it were made by him. Apparently back in 1950, or in the 1950s, it wasn't attributed to to Leonardo. And at one point, it was sold for 45 pounds, which is equivalent to $57. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) that person um, made a lot of money then. Um, I think it was then like later like attributed to his studio. So then it was worth more. But when it was finally like mostly attributed to him it was worth obviously even more um but yeah but it's still to this day some experts don't think it's completely done by him so that's kind of an interesting tidbit about this piece 
just in this one example, there are so many things of, of stuff that sort of stood out to me when I was reading about the world of expensive art. And this, first of all, the fact that like we don't even know who exactly painted this perhaps mm-hmm. and, and I feel like it was it obviously like used to be not worth a lot and people were not valuing it and then all of a sudden it's the most expensive painting in the world because it was attributed to someone who is ostensibly one of the greatest artists mm-hmm. um, to ever live and, it, and is such a famous name that it gives it this value that people place on it that it didn't have before even it would it was exactly the same painting and it was several orders of magnitude less money which is so funny to think about and also the ways that as it changes hands it changes price because people make different discoveries about it Um, which is also a huge thing in the art market is this idea of art flipping Mm -hmm. um, and basically buying things for either directly from the artist in the case of contemporary art or buying things that like you've got a good eye for might be more valuable than it seems um, and being able to sell it from for a much larger amount of money that clearly uh, whoever spotted this painting and thought wonder maybe if I should get this reevaluated about (laughs) to see if somebody was wrong about who actually painted this uh, they were making a very smart decision. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I also read that there are apparently only 20 known works by Leonardo that or 20 works that are attributed to him today. He obviously painted Mm. a lot more than that. But so I think it's one of the other uh, contributing factors to the huge price is that like Leonardo paintings that still survive to this day is pretty rare. Um, I believe all the other all the other nineteen uh, pieces are uh, in public collections, uh, so they are possible for public to see. This is the only work that still remain in a private collection. So yeah, the fact that it's Leonardo works are rare, and then they're also all in public collections. It probably made this piece even more valuable. Yeah, that's like the perfect storm because I mean that's really what makes art so expensive in the first place is because of the scarcity and this idea that it it takes it's so labor intensive it's become this status symbol to have works of art and what bigger status symbol can there possibly be of having this incredibly rare piece of art from a name that everyone knows Mm -hmm. Um, yeah exactly and but the thing that is interesting uh, with uh, this work, particularly that like we don't know exactly where it is, and depending on where it is, we don't really know if the buyer like bought it for investment purposes or if like they just really liked this painting, um, or they just had so much money that <laughs> they didn't know where else to put it. Um, but it is, I mean, it is a little bit like if it, like if the person did buy it for investment reasons, like it is a little like for me that doesn't make me very happy because you know I'm like I like art and would like to be able to see it and appreciate it and I would hope whoever's collecting art genuinely feels the same way that they just really like it and are interested in the aesthetics and the backstory of it and I really just appreciate the artwork Um, but that's you know not how everybody treats art. One thing that I wanted to point out briefly about this idea of like the most expensive paintings as well is there's this mm-hmm. article that has like the top 16 most expensive paintings mm-hmm. and I checked and 12 out of those top 16 were sold in the last five years. Mm. 
And so obviously inflation is part of that, but I think that's a really strong indication that people are paying more and more for art and that um, these high-value art investments are getting more common. And it doesn't necessarily mean that people are, in general, are getting richer. It just means that there are, like... A big, there's a bigger wealth gap in the world um, that's growing bigger and bigger because it just because these prices are so much higher, it just means there are now a very few uh, a, a small selection of people who can afford to pay lots of money. Um, but there's more and more of us who are not in that bracket. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, I should I should have actually I should have started off this episode with the premise of like this topic is actually something that I don't usually like to talk about because some sometimes it really makes me sick. <laughs> like uh-huh. um, it makes me um, like when I like I work at um, a gallery and I'm a gallery guide there and often people would like come in and t- uh, want to talk about art and money and how much this painting's worth and this is worth and I don't usually like to get into it because I'm like there's just so much more like for me when I look at a painting like I don't really care how much it costs um I just like to study it and look at it and appreciate it um but I think it's there's obviously this the art market is such a huge thing and it is um it is there and it's it, it is important to acknowledge um but i do just find it really sad because art prices as you've said are they've just been skyrocketing in recent years and they are so high that museums basically can't afford to buy them anymore they have to rely on donors to make donations to galleries so that they can actually have a collection so um where I work, like, you know, there's um, basically uh, these huge contributors who have donated large collections. And I'm very thankful for those uh, collectors who do, uh, you know, actually, like, who don't just, like, hoard it and put it in a free port or in their private yacht, who actually will let it be on display in a public collection. So even though they obviously get a huge tax break for donating the artwork uh, to the public collection. But still, at least, you know, at least the public can see it. Um, So that makes me feel a little bit better. Um, But yeah, like, it's just it is a topic that just makes me go, like, it just gets me angry sometimes. Yeah, I totally get that. And there's so much that when you really delve into it, that is frustrating, because there have been changes that are that are relatively recent into the world that have made it such a viable option to for the ultra rich to collect art and to have significant advantages from art investments and one one of the sort of landmark moments of the idea of art collecting um especially when you're looking at modern art uh and contemporary uh art was on specifically october 18th 1973 there was an auction um where they put 50 pieces up and that ultimately went for $2.2 million, which at the time was completely unheard of for contemporary art that they were selling. Um, and it, they, this was a case of extreme art flipping where they had this, um, a man named Robert School had flipped a bunch of art, including specifically this one work that he had bought directly from the artist, uh, Robert Rauschenberg, mm-hmm. I think he's he so he purchased the work for nine hundred dollars um, years previously, and then it was sold for eighty five thousand mm. um, dollars. And the artist 
physically confronted him and shoved him after the sale and accused him of exploiting artists, hmm. um, which became sort of this this turning point, um, especially, as I was saying, for contemporary art, where suddenly there was this idea of you can flip art and you can take contemporary art and make a profit out of it. And it is something that that is a, a status symbol, the same as something as one of the quote unquote great masters like a Monet or Leonardo da Vinci piece can be. There was a critic named Barbara Rose who called it the moment the art world collapsed. Hmm. Um, wow. And it is, in, in some ways, this was a turning point when art it was seen. In, and uh, obviously art collecting has always existed. Like mm-hmm. patrons of art have always existed and they've always been the ultra wealthy. Um, it's never been something that's like of the proletariat. Mm-hmm. But through uh, through the uber divisions of wealth that exist in today's societies, sort of paired with other aspects of, of uh, technology and tax brackets that we'll talk a little bit more, mm-hmm. I'm sure, um, has really created this world where it's more extreme than ever before. And it is kind of easier to exploit than ever before. Yeah. Earlier, I mentioned that, you know, like donors will donate artworks to um, museums and galleries. And well, that's great. Um, you know, the, it's it's a huge tax deduction f- to make charitable contributions. Like, you know, if you made like $5 million this year, and you donated a uh, artwork that's $2 million, then you technically only made $3 million this year. And you can save like hundreds of thousands of dollars on taxes or millions, depending on how much your you make and how much your artwork um, is worth. So a lot of the decisions to donate art isn't necessarily out of just the goodness of someone's heart. Um, it is very tax advantageous for them. And the other thing is, um, a thing that uh, collectors will do is that, like, when they donate a work of art to a museum or a, co- a public collection, they'll get it appraised. So yeah, to see like, if say that you bought that uh, Leonardo piece for $57 and you're not going to uh, deduct $57. You want to see how what how much is worth today and they'll get it appraised by um, like professional art appraisers and they'll use things like, you know, like sale records and also auction records from the past to determine that. And something that I found out that people do um, and galleries do galleries and collectors do this often which is they they will purposely bid up their price like at auctions and raise the prices um, of like each other's work or their own work and so that in later on when it gets appraised that this value is uh, appraised as a higher value so when they do make the charitable contributions it's now worth 2 million or 10 million or 450 million so uh yeah and it's like so auctions houses are basically like they're not regulated so it's it gets manipulated a lot and we don't really know like you can't really know for sure who's doing it on purpose or not um and a, like a lot of galleries would do it on their own artists to uh raise the value of the works of art of the artists that's in there that they represent uh collectors will do it for art artists that's in their collection because another thing that a auction house can do is they can what they can have is like a reserve price which is basically someone can say i won't sell this unless it gets to 200 million dollars um and then 
someone can people can bid on that and if it doesn't get to 200 million dollars and they don't sell it but say that this artwork i bought for 5 million and people are bidding it up to like 150 so now when the appraiser goes back to the auction records and they say oh it's now worth 150 even though you didn't even sell it so that's the thing is that they can use these types of manipulation tactics to make their art artificially be worth more so then they can later get a like bigger tax receipt which is also disgusting (laughs) in my opinion tax exploitation (laughs) yeah yeah and that's not even the only kind of exploitation there is uh with this kind of thing there's also there's a loophole in the tax code um called like kind exchanges and basically this was created to help protect uh like farmers basically um and to help them from paying excessive taxes uh when they were converting goods to other goods and you know being productive members of society (laughs) but basically this means like if you sell an expensive painting and then you use that money to buy another painting Mm -hmm. then you don't have to pay taxes on that money Mm. (laughs) um and you can just keep kicking this can down the road forever (laughs) so that's fun and on, on one hand, you might think like, well, isn't that just going like, isn't that just more money to artists, though? And maybe inadvertently, this does put some money um, into some artist's hands. But on the other side of this, there is there is a, a real effect on sort of the kind of work that gets produced when these effects are on the market. And you have and you have artists that are really trying to kind of cater to what the market is demanding and to cater to these um, very wealthy individuals who are looking for a very specific kind of thing rather than perhaps exploring new ideas, exploring things that would do better in museums because museums are becoming less of a viable option. Um, all of these things where it, it, it's stifling the actual creative output of contemporary artists. For sure. And because the the other thing I was mentioning before about museums having to rely on donors is then what uh, often happens is museum collections aren't really reflective of even what the museum curators or um, people at the museum what they what they want to reflect it reflects the taste of their donors and so um, even like where I work at the Art Gallery of Ontario like you know we want to represent like Canadian artists as diversely as possible to encompass like all different types of Canadian artists whether it's like race or gender or um, backgrounds and economic levels like we want to represent as we want to try to represent everyone but the reality is we can't because um, you know we'll get a donate or get donations from donors and they happen to only like one type of art or they happen to only like one artist or like a few select artists and you get these very homogenized collections and you know people come in are like how come you only have um (laughs) paintings from like uh you know white males basically and it's like because that's what the collectors collect and we would rather have it be more diverse but it's just not like it's or it's not it's possible but it's just much more difficult so that's also something that um is affected that's really interesting i never thought about that as such a big factor but especially what you were talking about is like if this is the primary way that museums are getting art now then of course it's going to be so directly influenced by the taste of the collectors rather than sort of what the 
curators want to represent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's like even even if the curators weren't biased, uh, and like even if the museum institution itself wasn't biased, which it is, but even if it wasn't, um, it's like, well, this is just what our uh, donors like. So, um, yeah, like that's it's uh, it's really a shame, and that's again, it's like the the market as well as the like galleries are reflective of like these wealthy individuals and not necessarily of everyone. I think all the things that we've been talking about so far are kind of a combination of like some of it is just outright exploitation (laughs) um, and just like deliberate manipulation of art for tax benefits. Um, And some of it is people with a lot of money who are in some cases just genuinely trying to do something with it that's not buying another yacht or whatever it is <laughs> yeah. that rich people do and it, and there there's absolutely the status symbol part of it and there's also the part of it that like sometimes people really like art and they want to collect it or they want to make it more accessible to other people by buying it and donating it to the museums mm. and art as as something that is necessarily driven by scarcity and and takes this kind of human labor to create it always has and it always will require rich patrons to support it so i'm not necessarily saying that rich people should never buy art <laughs> right. again because that would definitely immediately collapse everything <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> all, all art sales but a part of this is just talking about the side effects that you don't necessarily think about until this is such a universal phenomenon that it, it ends up influencing all of these things um and the way that everyday people experience art even when they walk into in a museum. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I, I should, I definitely want to clarify that, like, I am very appreciative of all of, like, the donors, especially where I work, <laughs> who, like, you know, gave us, you know, like, amazing works of art. And um, it's obviously still very generous. And it's obviously still, um, like, we require the support of patrons and donors and people in order to for the art world to continue to exist um but like on the topic i of what you were talking about earlier about tax loopholes um i just read recently that um in the u.s there is like a uh, if you buy art from another state there's another tax loophole that you can exploit basically so um, if you bought art from another state you don't have to pay the taxes in that state you have to pay for this thing called a use tax in your own state um so your your tax in your own state whatever it is say that it's like nine percent so you would have to pay it um but there are some states where they have a uh like a loophole where you can avoid the um use tax of this state if you have it displayed in another state for more than 90 days so uh oregon for example doesn't have a uh, sales or use tax so what a lot of collectors in california are doing is they'll buy artwork they'll have it in display in oregon for three months and then they'll take it back to California and then they pay zero tax on that so and then they would like collude with local Oregon galleries to do that and uh, yeah again like they'll end up paying zero taxes and that's another loophole they can exploit wow yeah so you're telling me that if you want to run a gallery, you should do it in Oregon. Basically, yeah. <laughs> so if you want to make some extra cash or have some business on the side or have some art displayed for free, then do it in Oregon. 
Um, and so the other thing, actually, so the other thing that I mentioned earlier are these um, these tax havens, basically called free ports, and they're these ginormous, um, like uh, temperature controlled warehouses that you can basically just put uh, art in for tax free until you like take it out, which then you have to pay taxes. But um, so there's one in Geneva, Switzerland. um, And then there's also one in Delaware, there's ones like all over the place. And like what some people do is they will uh, buy a work of art, put it in the free port, so that's tax free right now, um, and then they'll resell it to somebody else. And so, but it, the art stays in the free port. So the art technically changed hands between one collector to another, but physically it didn't go anywhere. It stayed in the free port. So then for the next person it's still tax free so this is where like for people who do this they obviously don't care about the art they just care they just use it as an investment so then it's just like this transaction but the art doesn't actually ever leave anywhere uh, any of these warehouses and i don't like i don't really i've never been to one of these places obviously i don't really know what it looks like but in my mind like when i first heard about this i just pictured that scene at the end of indiana jones um <laughs> that big warehouses just full of boxes like that's what i just think about i'm like it's probably just that and like uh no one ever gets to see the art it's actually wild how many of these strategies just involve kind of kicking taxes down the road Mm -hmm. and sort of trusting that you're just not going to be the person stuck with the hot potato at the end (laughs) pretty much because i guess they they can just go and on indefinitely or until they change the tax code and you better not be holding the painting when that happens i guess (laughs) it is just so interesting and how yeah how like people are, are using art as like a place to um, hold their money and, um, yeah, just trying to avoid as many taxes as possible. One thing that I want to dive into a little bit is I read some about um, the change of the art market in sort of the Great Recession of 2008, which had a big influence on specifically sales of contemporary art and modern art. Uh, It fell by more than two-thirds from 2008 to 2009 but that the sort of mainstay art investments of like the the quote-unquote great masters and all of that continue to to keep their value and and pretty quickly grow value again even though there was this economic downturn happening which i find very interesting is like art is such a hugely profitable field for so many people and contemporary art has joined that but in times of economic distress contemporary art gets dropped Mm -hmm. and then it's back to no no let me keep my Rembrandts and you can take everything made in the last hundred years (laughs) yeah it's almost like how when yeah I think it was when the recession hit a lot of people went to like hold on to gold um like gold Mm. prices stayed like steady or something so I guess it's like something old some that people just decided to it was uh, a more conservative investment I've I don't know (laughs) it's so funny to me because all value is subjective ultimately um besides you know does this literally provide a basic human need it's pretty much just how much do we decide something is worth Mm -hmm. and art is is basically the pinnacle of that but at the same time there's this idea of oh no 
a Rembrandt will always hold its value because it's so old and so (laughs) universally valued that it's going to be this incredible piece of art um, even if we put the Jaxic Pollocks over in a corner. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no real logical reason why but I feel mm. that I kind of emotionally feel the same way where if someone like offered me the choice of which one would you pick as a, a personal financial investment well, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd be like well obviously the Rembrandt yeah I wonder if it has to do with because I know last time like we were talking about postcards and I mentioned that the most expensive postcard which sold for like 48,000 pounds or something like that happened to be the oldest po- known postcard so it's like it, I guess I think there's there is a part of art and collecting where the older something is the higher its value is just because of the nature of how old it is yeah that is true because at some point it's also a historical Mm -hmm. artifact as well as an aesthetic piece yeah so that's that's more more likely the reason why like some of the older pieces hold their values for longer than the more contemporary pieces I guess Mm -hmm. Just bury the painting in your backyard with your gold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah, that might destroy the painting a little bit. <laughs> and the other sort of modern update about this that I was reading is the way that millennials are experiencing art flipping. Mm. Um, so if you think of millennials as people who are like roughly 23, 24 to 40-ish at this point, 85% of millennials said they were very or somewhat likely to sell art in the next year. So they're, they're much more likely to see it as a financial asset as opposed to 41% of Gen X collectors and 24% of baby boomers. And these are people who have like purchased art. Um, it's not just like <laughs> 85% of all millennials oh, okay. said they're <laughs> likely to sell art in the next year. That'd be wild. Yeah, they're like, um, I thought millennials were poor because... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, no, of the people who have art, um, they are much more likely to view it as something that they are attempting to flip, that they're attempting to sell and and see as this kind of financial asset, um, rather than a people of older generations, which I think is really funny. And I'm not sure how much of that is maybe there are a lot fewer millennials who have art because they are younger, they've had less time to accrue wealth and and therefore art. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe it's just that the the millennials who can afford buying art are just all real high flyers but (laughs) it's possible yeah but i mean the the disparity between 85 percent of millennials and 24 percent of baby boomers is just huge Mm -hmm. and they also said that they are more likely to kind of consider a work's value and the market rather than just the aesthetics of it when they're deciding what to buy which honestly i think makes a lot of sense i think these are millennials like came of age in a more materialistic world in a more financially unstable world Um, and so I think it's only natural for these people to be these people me Mm -hmm. I (laughs) guess (laughs) to be um, viewing these kinds of things as financial assets perhaps even more than they are aesthetic choices but it's also kind of sad when we're talking about all these things and there's we're kind of shaking our fists at the sky and everything (laughs) but it seems like it's going the wrong direction yeah that really surprises me um that statistic because i just associate like millennials with not having wealth (laughs) but then then again like obviously there are gonna be select individuals um who are millennials who do have money and places to 
spent them. <laughs> so, um, and so maybe it's like a small sample size because the amount of wealthy millennials are so small. And if you happen to be a millennial who has a lot of money, you are more likely to, yeah, more likely to invest in art. So, but yeah, it it is a very surprising statistic well, when I hear that. Yeah, looking at the specific data, so this is from the 2018 U.S. Trust Insights on Wealth and Worth. That is the full official title mm-hmm. uh, from the Bank of America. And I'm not seeing the specific number of millennials that they surveyed, but it comes from a survey of 892, quote unquote, high net worth individuals. Um, a sentence I hate, <laughs> but they specify that, quote unquote, Quotas were established by age and investable asset size to ensure sufficient representation of groups of interest. So they're saying, trust us, we surveyed enough millennials. <laughs> okay. Well, at least millennials who have uh, over $3 million of investable assets. So uh, yeah, there are at least some who have that much who are millennials. Apparently so. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting how there are so many who are investing in art. Well, maybe... Like, I guess in a way that's kind of good um, because, like, one thing, like, we do at the um, art gallery that I work at, like, we do struggle with is attracting younger audiences. Like, a lot of our members, a lot of our visitors are, like, 50 or above. And, like, this year, like, we're also, like, we have these campaigns and, like, discounted tickets. We actually have um, this program where if you're under 25, it's actually free uh, all year. So, yeah. So come, wow, come to I gotta come to yeah, Toronto. Come to Toronto. <laughs> come to the Art Gallery of Ontario. It's yeah. So, um, it, it's so we're actually attracting a lot more like of a younger audience that way. But it is it has been like much more difficult to attract younger people to come to museums and galleries. And uh, so I guess in a way it's kind of good that um, at least these we have. Uh, some wealthy millennials who can continue to be the uh, donors and contributors also of the art institutions. It's a glass half empty, glass half full kind of situation. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think for me, it is like difficult to talk about because it's like, on the one hand, it is anger inducing. (laughs) But in on the other hand, it's like it is what drives the art market and what um, ultimately in a way, like determines what ends up in collections and what ends up in museums. And, um, but I do think it's an important thing to keep in mind is that like these artworks you see um, are not in even in museums and galleries are not necessarily like the best. Um, It's just it just happens to be like what uh, wealthy collectors like or or feel are valuable to them. Um, And that's kind of like how the art market is shaped. Yeah, and also on one hand, these these wealthy collectors are driving the purchase of art, even if they have other effects that aren't so great. But on the other hand, if they were doing less tax evasion, <laughs> we'd have more tax money to fund artists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is true. So we also have more to fund, you know, art institutions and museums um there's a lot of moving parts exactly you might not have an answer to this question but i wonder if you have any kind of insight as someone who works um in an art gallery Mm -hmm. is there anything that kind of the average person can do to encourage 
works of certain kinds of works of art or even like specific artists to be put into galleries and museums Mm -hmm. um either through like speaking to the museum or is there any way to sort of pressure donors directly like how does that work yeah that's a good question and i don't really have a i don't think i don't know if i have a good answer to that but uh, on the one hand, like I know when we have shows, um, we always collect data on like how popular a show was. So uh, like how many people attended, what the ticket sales are, how long people spend at the exhibition. And we also even collect survey feedback or they'll interview people who are walking through the galleries about the shows. And so we always have um, a database of like how popular like an exhibition did. So I guess like in a way into um to promote like some artists is like if you see a show of an artist that like you really like and you think deserve more attention is I would say go to the show and go do that survey and say I really liked it and it was 10 out of 10 and um that I do want more of this artist um yeah, so like for instance, a couple years ago we had a Georgia O'Keeffe show at the AGO, and I love her work. And she happens to be the female artist who has sold, who has the highest auction record, which is forty-four point four million dollars for her painting of a white flower. I forget the name of the painting, um, but basically, uh, so it's even though it's the highest. I was actually earlier scrolling through that most list of most expensive painting just to see if I can find the Georgia. O'Keefe fork and it's not even on it i think she's probably number like 78 or something like that in like the most Hmm. expensive ever sold so but anyway like um that show ended up doing really well i think um and you know lots of people came out lots of people people said that like they love the work so and that those statistics help to determine like in the future what type of shows we're gonna do um because even though you know we again we like to be more diverse we still have to make money because only like a third of our um revenue comes from tax dollars so we still have to make money on these shows in order to have the museum continue as a business so but yeah like when a show does well there's more like like we'll most likely do another O'Keefe show in the future or something similar so I guess that's really um or one of the few like direct ways you can um advocate for an artist um and other than that is just if you know someone who's really rich and encourage them to collect uh a more uh more of artists that you think deserve more attention (laughs) two strategies deploy them as best as you can (laughs) exactly well thank you for listening to this episode of pictorial and supporting us with your ears and your time (laughs) Um, if you want to follow us on twitter instagram we're there at pictorial pod where we post the images that we talked about in this today's episode kind of low on the images and high on the tax credits for this episode (laughs) but there'll still be some fun stuff up on those if you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, I'm at AspiringRobotFM on both. And if you want to find me on the internet, I'm at ArticulationsV on Twitter. And on YouTube, you can find me at Articulations. And there's also a Google form in the show notes if you have any topic you'd like to suggest that we cover in the future. Thanks for listening and go support art. Thank you for listening, art enthusiasts.
can exist as a status symbol the same as sort of like a Leonardo da Vinci I almost said Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) (laughs) that's okay (laughs) let me say that sentence again yeah (laughs) 